piggy stayed home. But this little piggy was a boogie woogie piggy, and he boogie woogied all the way home. This little piggy had roast beef. This little piggy had none. But this little piggy was a boogie woogie piggy, and he did the lindy all the way home. Piggly wiggly piggy. Boogly woogie boogie. The boogly woogly piggly with the oink oink. This little piggy dug to beat. This piggy thought that false was divine. But this little piggy was a happy little piggy and he boogie woogie all of the time. Turn down West Brown, everybody, who played for Bob Hope from the 40s until the 90s. And hello, everybody. I'm Wong Xu. It is Saturday night, May the 29th, year 2010. And hello, Patricia. How hello, Walden. 
And you want to introduce our special guest? I want to introduce our special guest. Would you turn me up just a little bit? I'm having trouble hearing you, and um, it would be really there nice you go. That's to hear right. everybody. There you go. There we go. Terrific. Um, hi, Bob. Hi. Oh. Yeah, I couldn't hear him either. I thought he left. Oh, okay. He had himself turned <laughs> out. Right. Are we back on track now? Hi, everybody. Happy, happy Saturday. We are talking tonight to Bob Mills. Bob Mills is the author of The Last Makers with the subtitle, A Behind-the-Scenes Tribute to Bob Hope's Incredible Gag Writers. Bob Mills is one of those incredible gag writers who wrote comedy for Bob Hope. Um, the book, and I will give additional information as we go along, the book is another one by Bear Manor Media. Bear Manor Media is one of our best buddies because they pay such close attention to the early entertainment areas. So I'm, I'm just delighted to be able to do that. So you can get more information and even order the book uh, through bearmanormedia.com. The writer is Bob Mills. The name of the book is The Laugh Makers. And here we are with Bob Mills. I am so happy that we have an opportunity to talk tonight, Bob. No, it's great to be here. And before we uh, get any further in, also Amazon.com. They will mm -hmm. remember that. You forget Bear Manor. But you go on Amazon.com and uh, go to my page there. Just uh, put uh, my name in the little box, you know, the author thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll get my page. And there's, up, there's about 25, I think it's up to about 25 reviews of the book by all kinds of people, not just my friends, some people I didn't even know. Not, so, and not all your mom or your kids no, or anything, no, really? No, no family, but one family member, my brother, but that's about it. Well, but, he uh, I'm very, I'm very uh, pleased and uh, flattered that it's getting uh, such a great reception by the public because I thought at the time that I was writing it that uh, it's in the nature of a history book, really, because I was putting down... Um, details of an era that uh, is uh, gone now, and even at the time I was living it, I knew that I had caught the tail end of this uh, this part of show business that was uh, not going to come back again. And what I mean by that is that we had people on our show, and Bob himself had been uh, in vaudeville, so we had vaudevillians to to uh, uh, deal with and to work with, and. They were all so bloody talented. They really were. And I look back and I think how lucky we were to have had the George Burns and uh, Lucille Ball and Milton Berle and uh, uh, oh, just uh, endless list, all gone now, most of them. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the talent, depth of talent that they all had, and I talk about it a lot in the book that uh, Bob always love to have multi-talented people that he could do a song and dance with and then the next segment they'd be in a sketch with him and they could play sketch as well mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's uh, that's really something and he made it look so easy and they all made it look easy I, believe I, me uh, you know it's not and uh, uh, you couldn't you couldn't feel the show like he did today because there's just not uh, anybody around left that yeah. could do all those things. You know? But you've, you've got an unusual perspective. I want to give people just a little bit of information about you and your background and then come up with a list of questions. But you've got such an unusual perspective of a part of the entertainment industry. In fact, you've got a unique, in the truest sense of that word, a unique perspective yeah. because you were on 
both sides of the performances. Right. So it, it, it's just a remarkable, um, it really is a remarkable book, and I'll, I'll add my comments in yeah. just a minute. Well, I had no. a great advantage because, as I point out in the book, I, I was a lawyer turned comedy writer. And, I got uh, that here. Ten years yeah. as an attorney. And I, I spent ten years as an attorney and, and didn't enjoy a minute of it and always trying to find something else I could do for a living and kind of stumbled on comedy writing by uh, submitting some jokes to a disc jockey in San Francisco named Don Sherwood back in the uh, in the mid-70s. And uh, one thing led to another, and lo and behold, I had this talent that I knew I, you know, had a, a propensity toward it. I had uh, been like the humor editor on the high school newspaper and that sort of thing, but it never dawned on me that I could make my living actually doing anything connected with comedy. So when I got into it, I was relatively old. I was 40 years old when I was hired by Bob Hope. And I had only had um, a season of Dean Martin's Celebrity Roast before that. Then I worked a little bit on uh, the Dinah Shore talk show, which gave me training in television. But I got all this real fast, and I had to play catch-up. But the advantage to it was I always was aware of the fact that I shouldn't have been there by all logic. And I always felt so lucky to be observing all of these people doing uh, what they did, and I'm watching them and getting to know them as, as people, and uh, that sense that I had the whole time that I worked in uh, in television never never left. So I was ready to uh, get this down on paper and write a book. You know, when uh, when uh, Bob stopped doing television in 1992, uh -huh. and then I got kind of waylaid because I I had the book together and I had all the stories. And uh, I submitted them to a cruise ship called, a uh, cruise line called uh, uh, Crystal Cruises, and they wanted me to go out on their ships and, and talk about these, uh, these stories, which I did. So my wife and I, Shelley, um, traveled around for, oh, close to eight, nine years um, and saw the world. We went to Africa and South America and Australia, and it was, it was great. And at the end of each show, People would ask, uh, "Do you uh, can I? Do you have a book?" And uh, I'd say, "Oh yes, this is all. All these stories are in a book. And you know, what can I buy it? Well, it's not published, but so <laughs> I, <laughs> I was kind of lazy there. I didn't want to uh, to get involved in the publishing if I could avoid it because it's time consuming. It takes a good long time, you know, to do all the the uh, printing things and uh, the photos. This book has 83 pictures in it." And a lot of which I took myself uh, all over the world traveling with Bob and a lot of backstage stuff. And so uh, I knew that I would have to set some time aside. And I did finally. And uh, now I'm uh, going to I'm trying to get back out on the cruise ships now that I have a book. But everybody I used to deal with has moved on, so I have no contacts anymore. I'm always too late in the you know, oh, that's but funny. six bit that's... short. But uh, no, I, I, it was a great advantage that I had that uh, I always felt like I was observing history at the time. A lot of people say, oh, good old days, uh, and they didn't realize it, so they look back. But uh -huh. I knew at the time, I thought they... These are the good old days personified because they're never going to be back again. When you're standing there, for instance, watching uh, Bob Hope and George Burns, which I did, uh, we did a, a tribute to the Palace Theater over in uh, in Burbank at the NBC studios. We had 
recreated the Palace Theater, and we had it all in you know 1890s style, and it looked exactly like we got the plans from the original Palace Theater where all the vaudevillians played, and it was a fabulous special. And on it, uh, Hope and Burns uh, do a song and dance. And it is just precious. It's such a great number. And uh, I show these clips on the on the cruise ships. And it's one of the, you know, favorites because here were these two giants. And then they they had been on the road, so they didn't have enough rehearsal time. And it was a kind of a complicated piece they were doing. And so when we would shut down to readjust the camera and stuff, uh, they would reminisce in real time about their days in vaudeville and talk about the old acts do you remember so and so and do you back and forth and yeah, i'm thinking to myself this is just this is priceless you know to have this now on uh, on tape and uh, tape yeah now it's you were uh, doing a prospective TV. retrospective here yeah really really i you know i can't wait to my original idea was to do college tours and uh and teach uh, how we how we work to yeah. college entertainment divisions, you know, and radio and TV uh, departments that they have. And I may still do that. I think it would be invaluable to... Uh, to In the meantime, to... I'm very glad you wrote the book because, folks, this really is uh, an unusual combination of history, entertainment history. When I say history, we're talking about... Uh, things like Bob Hope's trip to China and the political climate at the time and what you and the team went through, Bob, oh. uh, in order to get in, do, and get out and what went on during that time. Um, the USO tour, the presidents whom Bob Hope had a great deal of contact with. So there's a, a, an awful lot of history era history in there, as well as entertainment history, as well as biographical information. So it really is an unusual package, and it's unusually well done. I mean, we've yeah, got a professional well, writer much. who's doing this, folks. But, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I hope uh, you enjoyed uh, how I put it together and stuff. But um, it actually fell together, um, and it, what helped me was uh, the, the cruise ship lectures. I would actually get out on stage and people would ask me questions you know and i would answer and then i would think i don't have that in my notes i better take that down <laughs> so i would do that you know i'm uh -huh. sure that i remembered that story that i just told them and so uh, when i first started doing the cruise ships the book was probably maybe 200 pages maybe and when i got finished <laughs> i had a, another whole uh, almost uh, twice as much uh, when I finished. <laughs> you needed a hand truck to get adding, off. So, so it was lucky that I didn't write the book immediately because yeah. I would be looking back now and saying, God, I wish I you know, included that story or some other story. But uh, You've got more than enough for a sequel. How many years did you write for Bob Hope? It came out to about 18, 17 and three quarters, something like that. He stopped uh, doing a television uh in the sense of how we had been doing it with a full staff mm -hmm. in 1992. And then after that, there, there were some retrospectives and some, uh, uh, some clip shows and that sort of thing, and they'd honor him. And um, uh, he did, uh, I think his last show was in 1995, that he was actually seen on television. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then he lived a long time after that, and not in very good health, which uh, I always thought was a little bit ironic because he was in such great health 
until uh, it started going downhill. And then when it did, it uh, it really um, uh, well, he was at, at the end. He was almost completely blind and completely deaf. So his quality of life, you know, had gone down to uh, yeah. fairly nothing. And I always felt sorry that uh, that happened because he uh, he paid a lot of attention to staying in good shape and um, not uh, he, he knew every trick in the book to uh, to live a long life. Uh, he used to call me and uh, he'd say, Bob, uh, we ought to do some things on this oil well. And I'd say, Bob, are you getting a massage? And he'd say, how did you know? <laughs> so what he would do, he would... Uh, he, after every performance, he had uh, misuses all over the country that he would call in advance and say, I'm going to be in your city and I'm doing some shows and it'll be, keep yourself available. And uh, then after he would come off stage, he'd go back to the hotel and get a rub down instead of uh, taking drugs, which, you know, rock stars have been known yeah. to do, or drink, which is done. Uh, leave the rat pack out of this. Uh, Sammy was one of our best friends, but the lifestyle was not uh, the best. And Hope knew that early on, and he thought, well, if I'm going to stay healthy and do this for as long as I can, uh, I have to uh, keep myself in shape. So he, he paid attention to uh, what he ate and, uh, and how he exercised, and he would take long walks. And I have some great stories about walking with him when we were in China in 79. That was the only country in the world, literally, where he could walk down the street and no one would recognize him because the road pictures had not reached Peking <laughs> by then, <laughs> as yet, right? And, uh, you know, it was peasants and no, they didn't even have uh, television was just new there uh -huh. in 79, you know. And uh, so he could walk down the street. And this had been the first time in maybe 50 years that he could do that. And he loved it for about you know, a week. <laughs> We'd take these long walks around the around Peking, our hotel there, and uh, he just he enjoyed it. And then after a while, he'd say, uh, "You know, I kind of miss the uh, the crowds and everything." But when we get to Shanghai, and we were we were three weeks in Peking and a week in Shanghai, he'd say. Uh, you know, they're going to know me in Shanghai because Shanghai's British, and, you know, I was born in England, so they'll know me there. Well, we got to Shanghai. They didn't know him any more there than they had in Peking. And, oh, I got some stories about, uh, about him being recognized. I'm, I'm hopping over to page two here because you're talking about China, and I did want to ask you about that. Now, you and Bob Hope and the entourage, I'll call it the entourage, you had a handful of people who carried all of the weight there. You went to China for a performance, and it was not the warmest time in the American-Chinese relationships. So Nixon had just shaken hands um, with the Chinese government. Well, five, five right. years before, he had, they had signed the trade agreement uh -huh. in 1974. And when they signed that, Bob Hope went to Henry Kissinger, and uh, he had socialized with Henry, and they were good friends, you know. And he said, Henry... If I'm not the first American entertainer allowed to do a show in China to tape a special there, you're going to have to answer to me because you owe me for uh, all my, you know, overseas trips and things. And they did. So, yes, Bob, no problem. We will do that. So every, uh, every year we would say, are we going to China this year, Bob? 
and he'd say, no, not, I don't, stay packed. He'd always say, stay packed, you never know. And then in 79, we got the green light. And the reason we did was um, they had opened a, a hands across the ocean type of thing, and they called it ping pong diplomacy. And uh, they sent some ping pong teams over, and they gave demonstrations around the country. And uh, then we were to send some of our entertainers, Bob Hope being, of course, uh, the first one. And, of course, now the Chinese uh, do a background check on Bob Hope, and they find out he's ribbed president since uh, FDR and all the way through. <laughs> one of the, I mean, he had no uh, hesitancy in getting up there and uh, and just... You know, hitting the government, the IRS used to do anti-tax jokes and all that. I mean, you watch John Stewart today, and, uh, you know, it's mild compared to what Hope used to say about politicians and stuff. And so they were a little bit wary of uh, Bob Hope, but uh, the State Department had uh, sold them on, uh, on allowing us to go in there. And they were very strict. They said we could bring 45 people total. So uh, that meant that uh, very few of the wives got to go. Hope was very family-oriented, so if he could bring if he could bring wives along, uh, we were allowed to do that. And because he knows a, a happy writer is the one whose wife is happy. So uh, now, when you say 45 people, did that include um, musicians and yeah, writers yeah, and yes. the whole and gang? Writers, every everybody, and and that's a uh, uh, cast. We had uh, Mikhail Bereshnikov. Uh, he just loved to go, and and you know uh, he was a he was young. He was so young at the time, and he gave a master class at the uh, Peking Ballet School, and just a marvelous uh, segment that we got of him uh, talking to the to the Chinese students and giving a demonstration and jumping, doing these jumps and everything. And we took um, we took Big Bird from Sesame Street. Oh, I Big love Bird. it. There's a guy named uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Carol Spinney, and uh, Carol uh, really went over big in China because we had to be careful about the language because um, they uh, they weren't speaking English yet. Very few spoke English, and so uh, visual uh, was the rule of the day. So we brought two mimes called Shields and Yarnell. Bob Shields and mm-hmm. Lorene Yarnell were uh, very big uh, mimes. And we had a lot of fun with them. We put them in a, a department store in Shanghai and had them pretend they were mannequins. And then the Chinese people would come by and look and then they'd move, you know, that old bit. But it still works, you know, candid camera type stuff. But um, the the language problem was right from the start because um, uh, Bob, of course, doesn't speak Mandarin <laughs> or, or uh, any Chinese at all. So w- what we did was, uh, the first thing we tried to do was, for the monologue, cast the jokes on the, on a big screen for the half of the audience was Chinese and half was American. We had a lot of uh, uh, embassy workers there and, and um, corporate people who were there that were Americans and spoke uh, spoke English, and then um, the Chinese people, and we, and we had all the Chinese leaders, too, and uh, watching Bob's monologue with these big army suits on, you know, those, those oh, yeah. gray things, with the little uh-huh. red star on the hats, and Hope looks through the uh, curtain, and he says, look at them out there. 
oh, I, how am I going to get laughs? How am I? They don't even speak English. And Gig Henry, God rest his soul, my, he was the other writer assigned. There were only two writers allowed, Gig and I. And uh, Gig says to him, Bob, what are you worrying about? How many peasants could they have purged? Two, three million tops. <laughs> so, <laughs> and one. Looks at him, yeah, and frowns. He says, yeah, I guess, uh, hey, I survived vaudeville. I'll survive them. So we... Uh, Finally, had to settle on uh, an interpreter, which is for the first and only time, Bob had to uh, uh, wait for an interpreter to tell the audience the first half of the joke, and then he would finish the joke, and then the Chinese interpreter would uh, would finish for him, and uh, it worked out great because uh, you know it was such a such a different kind of approach. And, mm-hmm. Now, having an interpreter, and we've got so many other experiences to talk about, but I really don't want to let go of this. Having an interpreter um, and being at the mercy of a single person in your entire group who can translate can be a a well. You know, it was it was only because when we tried casting the uh, the Chinese uh, words on the on the wall. The Chinese, being very fast readers, they would get to the punchline real fast and laugh. And, of course, Hope would have just started the English part, mm-hmm. and, and it was throwing his timing off. So he came backstage after rehearsal, and he says, I can't, um, I can't do it with the, uh, the projection thing. We're going to have to do something else. And so stepped forward, one of the uh, leading actors in China at the time, and uh, was educated at Oxford in England, and later played the um, the disgraced mayor of Peking in uh, The Last Emperor, the big movie, The Last Emperor. And his name was Ru Ching. I always remembered him. A very nice guy. And he said, oh, Bob, I, no problem. I'll, uh, I'll interpret for you. He spoke just impeccable Mandarin and Cantonese. So we had the perfect interpreter, and he was very good, except he was a little hammy, as Hope is. <laughs> so... He would, uh, he, and I have some examples in there. That's what you're laughing at. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah, yeah. So they, <laughs> we had a joke in there that said, uh, I, uh, he was, t- Bob was talking about how he was seeing all the sights, and he said, uh, I, yesterday I went over to your forbidden city. It looks like uh, Caesar's Palace without the slot machines. And so he he starts to interpret it, and then he stops and he says, What's a Caesar's Palace? <laughs> and Bob says, oh, it's a little gambling place that we have in the States. It's okay. It's a little place that they take the money that the IRS doesn't get. So he gets a little laugh on that from the Americans, and he continues on. And then he says, uh, I, um, I went over to see your marble boat. There's a marble boat over there at the <laughs> Summer Palace made completely of marble. It just stands there about the size of a little riverboat uh, in Mississippi riverboat. Looks like it, too. Paddle wheeler, see? Mm-hmm. So he says, I went over to see your marble boat, and uh, they, they said it would never float. And then Billy Graham showed up. And uh, the guy stops, the interpreter stops, and says, who is Billy Graham? <laughs> now, and one of the fastest ad-libs that I've ever heard, Hope stops and says, Billy Graham is an advisor at Caesar's Palace. <laughs> well, he just screamed, you know. Uh, he was so good. He was such a great uh, ad-libber because he had a very fast mind, and a, he was fast on his feet. 
But uh, those are just some of the high points, and I've got a lot of uh, a lot of stories about uh, that China. In fact, there's two two chapters in the book on that trip alone. So I I do know that I read both of them. Tom, I read the whole book. Mm. <laughs> it really is a great book. Okay. Well, can we talk for just a couple of minutes about the the process of putting together? Bob Hope shows, which was quite different from mainstream in the entertainment industry. That's true. Yeah, the practice uh, usually was, and it was done on your show of shows and uh, the Milton Berle show and most of the big variety shows. Uh, you had a staff of writers, and everybody had kind of a specialty. There were guys who were good at sketches and uh, other teams, usually teams. Uh, and all men. It was kind of an old boys network. There were a few gals, but uh, not many. And, uh, more, more today, but still, you see the writing uh, staffs of Letterman. I don't think Letterman has any girls on his staff. And it's a shame because there are funny girls out there, but for some reason it's an old boys network. And uh, the way it usually worked was you would divide up the duties and uh, uh, people did what they their specialties were. And that's the way it worked. Well, with Hope, um, he was paying all of his writers, and he had a lot of them in, at radio. At one point, he had 13. That's the most he ever had at one time. But he's paying them salaries, you know. So he wants to get his money's worth. So he doesn't like the idea of dividing up the work. He wants everybody to write a complete show from start to finish. And in radio, that's exactly what they did. Can you imagine from the first opening of the show to the end, you write the script, and then not only that, you have to go over, and he has a, a gatehouse by his uh, big, big home in, uh, in Toluca Lake, and the writers would gather there, and uh, they would have to act out their sketches and act out their script in front of the other writers. Now, Hope knew that if you have to do that, you're going to do your best work because your, your peers are going to be judging you, right? So he, uh, he was very smart to, to work that way. Very expensive to work that way, too, because, uh, you know, you're not delegating stuff and you need a bigger staff. But uh, he, he kept that, uh, that rule in effect. And by the time we were doing television, he didn't have uh, – we, we averaged maybe four or five writers per, per show. We, would, we had a, a nucleus of uh, two or three of us who were on permanent staff and then – the rest of the writers would be brought in by the uh, different producers who would produce each, uh, each special, which was something that he started doing in the mid-70s at the behest of Texaco and NBC, who uh, wanted him to do that so his specials would uh, truly be special and not, uh, uh-huh. not have a cookie-cutter look about them, which they really had uh, gotten uh, in the 50s and 60s. You see a lot of those clips. And, they're kind of interchangeable, and all the sketches kind of look alike. And uh, once we started traveling, they wanted him to travel more, starting in the mid-70s, 1974 on. And uh, that's why all these trips came about. And lo and behold, I happened to join the show in 1977. So I get in on all these major trips, uh, the first one being uh, 1978. We went to Australia and did a fabulous show there. With, uh, we took down uh, Florence Henderson and Barbara Eden, and their shows were in their first run in Australia at the time, and so they were very popular. And uh, we just had a ball there. And then the following year, of course, was 
China in 79. Then we, we did Stockholm, Sweden one year, and we, uh, we would do uh, Palladium shows in London uh, every other year uh, for 10 years straight. I mean, we were just going to London, it seemed like, all the time. And we could take our wives on those trips, and uh, so it was a it was a happy time for all, to say to say the least. It was just a great um, time to to be in the business and working for uh, a guy like Bob Hope. You know, we were all lucky. Bob, you had so many writers, so many creative minds coming together to put these shows together. Um, and I, I I know from how you described it in your book, and in one other time when I heard you that. Um, Hope never messed around with your writing. If I interpreted your book information correctly, he wound up, and, and perhaps a, as a result of conversation with his writers, he wound up with a particular set of things he wanted you to write about, but he never told you how to do it, and he never messed with your writing. Did I understand that correctly? Exactly right. He, he, he was a great psychologist. He knew people, and he knew that when you write, especially monologue jokes, those are the jokes at the beginning of the show where you see Jay Leno comes out and does what passes for a monologue sometimes, and uh, Letterman, I'm not bitter or anything, but um, <laughs> the, the, but Hope started that, you know, it, it goes way back, that tradition, and uh, uh, it, uh, it's, he had a particular style, and all we, we would... We would submit um, uh, topic ideas, and it would be stuff out of the news, you know, and stuff that had to hold up because the show wouldn't air until probably the Sunday after the previous Friday. So we had to to uh, take that into account and make sure that what we were talking about would still be current in the news. But um, he he knew that when you write a line and uh, especially for a monologue because it's fast and you're 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 lean and mean and you're just bang 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 and you're writing the the joke in the exact wording it's like poetry you wrote it that way and that's the best way you think that idea can be stated and he knew that if he if he sent the joke back and said i love this idea but keep working on it it's not worded right we would start to get feelings like maybe I'm losing it you know I thought that was perfectly worded rather than do that he bought it or he didn't either the the joke was checked he had a checkoff system and he would make checks and if it got checked it was in if it didn't he'd pass but he wouldn't toss it out the girls would then take those unchecked jokes and file those under the category that's how he ended up with five million pages of material that's in the Smithsonian now and Library of Congress and all kinds of libraries. He never threw anything out. Now, what he was choosing from and checkmarking had come in from several writers. This was not a single writer who, who presented this. It came no, in from all, all of us. You. All of us would work. In fact, uh, that Which is just, I mean, it's astounding to me, Bob. Well, and it's... Yeah, but they, once you learn to work like that, uh, you know, he, he always gave us plenty of time. Um, I hear horror stories. I had friends who were in the sitcom business writing scripts for situation comedies, and uh, they lost a lot of sleep because if you were in trouble at 10 o'clock at night, you just didn't go home and come back the next day. If you were taping, you had to solve the problems and work into the night if need be. Well, 
Hope just avoided that because he knew that uh, it it's, doesn't make for a happy crew to have a bunch of zombies walking around who didn't get enough sleep, you know. And he wanted us to be at the top of our game all the time. And so he gave us plenty of time. And you would know how long you had. We usually had about three days to do the monologue. And we would do about 15 to 20 lines per topic. So, for instance, uh, today uh, we would obviously do the uh, the oil slick in, uh, in Louisiana and uh, try to come up with something funny about that, although it's getting grimmer by the day. You know, the, the yeah. latest uh, <laughs> uh, top uh, kill thing didn't work, and so they, they, they have to go to plan X. Uh, We're running out of the alphabet oh, there, yeah, too. Oh, yeah, it's just terrible. But uh, whatever was in the news, we would, uh, we would jump on that, and um, we would turn in 15 or 20 lines per topic, and we would usually have maybe 10 to 15 topics. So it's quite a few jokes. In fact, one time I calculated uh, he had like 2,500 jokes for one monologue, and that means that out of those jokes will come the survivors, which will be about 35 that will be heard by the audience at home. The audience in the studio will hear about a half hour's worth. The opening monologue mm-hmm. thing was about six minutes, I think. But uh, it took him a half hour to 40, 40 minutes or so to uh, to get up there and deliver all the jokes. And then he would immediately go into the control booth and watch himself telling the jokes and then tell the girl that one, put that one in, that one, that one, and she'd check off which ones, and then they would edit out the ones he didn't want in there. And that's then he, <laughs> then he would even reorder those uh, if he wanted uh, uh, jokes, the order changed or anything. He, he was on top of every phase of the show. That's what made the uh, Bob Hope special so, uh, so consistently of high quality over so many years because he he had good people around him and he delegated uh, uh, duties but he kept he kept his eye on everything like the lighting he would come in and he'd say uh, Lon Lon Stuckey was the lighting guy say Lon drop that light down a little bit so that the desk in the back yeah that's better I mean he, he had this eye you know and he knew exactly what he wanted Lucille Ball was the same way and uh a lot of people found her tough to work with because uh, she was <laughs> really on top of every phase yeah. of, uh, of the show. Yeah, Bob, that's interesting because Bob Hope grew up, for lack of a better term, in vaudeville and radio. That's right. And yet this is a visual medium that you're yep. talking about with lights and uh, appearances and angles. How did he learn that? He adapted to anything new. He he could uh, he could just adapt. He was a survivor, and to be at the top of uh, profession like that, if things change and you have to do it a little different, you learn how to do it differently and do it well. Now, not to say that the directors agreed with some of his ideas on on motion. Directors love to see a lot of movement in uh-huh. uh, sketches and things, you know. Uh, when two people are just talking to each other, they call it talking heads, and it's deadly. They don't like that. So they want somebody walking across the room while they're speaking and picking up something and doing something so that the audience at home has something to uh, to follow, and they're looking at it. Well, when Hope transferred his uh, sketch...
stroke-driven, which means uh, uh, they, they weren't all visual. And mm-hmm. they had some visual elements, but mostly joke-driven, just smart-ass stuff back and forth. <laughs> that's, uh, that's his style of humor. And so he didn't mind to, you know, have three or four people standing in a row just whipping these jokes out. And, of course, the directors, uh, <laughs> a lot of directors didn't like to work with him for that reason. So over the years, he developed some favorite directors who were willing to put up with uh, some of the, uh, the requirements they had of, of uh, not getting a lot of motion in there. And so um, there were about, oh, four or five that kind of circulated and uh, would do specials. Each of them would do maybe three or four specials a year. and So we'd see the same same guys over. But he, he came to trust the people that he, he worked with. And mm-hmm. uh, he liked he liked the people. He had to like you, first of all. Uh, he, he, didn't, um, he didn't like unpleasantness or uh, he loved people who were up. So one of my advantages was, as you can kind of tell, kind of an up person by nature and he liked that and uh, so we got along fine from the start and uh, he he was very uh, it was very difficult to get fired by Bob Hope <laughs> because he he was careful who he hired very careful uh-huh. but once he bought you and he knew you could do what he was paying you to do and you could do it well well then pretty much you had carte blanche and one time on the ships I, I said something and the people laughed, and I thought, God, what are they laughing at that for? It's so distasteful. But I said, uh, after a while, you got to feeling like you were um, the ge- geese that laid the golden eggs, you know. And I said, believe me, folks, we laid a few eggs in our day. <laughs> but uh, he would, <laughs> I said, it got to the point where you thought, uh, God, the only way I could really get fired from this job is to kill his grandmother or something. And then he would say, well, you know, she was getting along in years, and she can't write jokes. Then they laughed. <laughs> He'd be very forgiving. So I thought, well, they laughed. I threw that in there as an ad lib. So then I left that in the act and got to laugh every single time. <laughs> so I, I learned a few things over the Sometimes what people laugh at her uh, makes no sense, you know. That's cute. Uh, yeah. Bob Hope, from what you have described, was so meticulous about the script, so meticulous about the jokes, so meticulous about the delivery. And yet, what I heard you say in the book was that he wasn't wild about rehearsals. No, in fact... That's inconsistent. Well, no, it isn't. Just the opposite. Uh, He thought that once, once the material was chosen and we had words on paper, the more you rehearse that, the less spontaneous it becomes and the more rote it becomes, and mm-hmm. it's just over-rehearsed. And there's a, there's a chance that uh, things become over-rehearsed. And some, some actors and guests prefer a lot of rehearsal. Lucille Ball is a, oh, she loved rehearsal, and she hated Hope for not allowing enough rehearsal. She would say, Bob, let's try that. No, no, Lucy, that's fine, because, you know, they'll get stale, they'll get stale. So and he, would, uh, he would just move on, move on. And it wasn't laziness so much as, he didn't want them to lose the spontaneity mm-hmm. on the edginess of, if you're too familiar with the line, it just sounds like, you know, you've been doing a play on Broadway for five oh. years straight, and you it just kind of comes out automatically. Uh-huh. So everybody so, well, would be edgy, you know. 
Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense, the way you are describing it, well, so it was, as, him, as opposed it, it, to personal, as yeah. opposed to, I'm sorry for interrupting, go ahead. No, the, but the spontaneity in humor, he thought, and I, I agree with him, mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, it should sound like you're all making it up. In fact, a lot of people think uh, <laughs> that's how these shows are done. Gene Parrott had somebody came up, he worked on the, the Carol Burnett show, and he was at a party, and... Uh, this woman said to him, well, what do you do, Gene? She says, oh, I write for the Carol Burnett show. And she says, you mean that stuff is written? <laughs> and she wasn't kidding. So, you know, there's a, there's kind of a, a spontaneity about it. If it's done well, you don't see the writing. And when Bob Hope first started in radio, he uh, always loved the writers and loved working with them because he was uh, basically a writer himself. And... Uh, so he would mention the writers in the scripts, and he would he would mention them by name sometimes. And Ed Wynn came over to him. Ed Wynn had a, a show on radio, and he said, Bob, you, you should be doing what you're doing. He said, what do you mean, Ed? And he says, well, you, you mention the writers all the time. And, well, why do you do that? Well, they're nice guys, and I love, love them. And, and Ed said, uh, well, you know, uh, it, it destroys the illusion that we're actually... Uh, very funny people by nature. <laughs> Hope says, do you actually think people believe that we just go out there and make this up? And Edwin says, yes. <laughs> so, you know, that was uh, a thought that he had, but uh -huh. I think Hope was realistic enough to know that uh, people are smart enough to know that it is written. But the less, the less it feels written, the happier he was. Mm -hmm. You know, it mm -hmm. should feel kind of like you're just, uh, you're in the midst of an awful lot of very clever people yeah. hard <laughs> saying to sound, funny things, right? Hard to sound spontaneous when you rehearse well, the Well, that's time. exactly why um, award shows are so, uh, so static and so awful sometimes, because they force words into these young kids' mouths, and half the time you get the impression the kids don't even know what the meaning of what they're saying is, uh -huh. and they're obviously reading it, which, hey... We have nothing against that. Uh, Hope loved cue cards because uh, he didn't have to rehearse that much and he could come in <laughs> at the last minute from the road, see, and be on the cards. But I mean, he was criticized for using cue cards a lot, and you could see him looking off. But the alternative would have been learning the lines and, and memorizing them, and he just didn't have time to do that because a lot of times he had just flown in from Keokuk or somewhere he had done a show the night before, Mm -hmm. And that live shows were his, his stock and trade. That's what he loved to do. And the television was just an advertising gimmick to keep the public aware of the fact that he was around and doing what he did and keep his name up front. And, but what he really loved was going out in front of a live audience, a great big audience, and I'd watch him, and he was just in seventh heaven, boy, when he got those laughs, and he knew where they all were after all these years of doing a lot of stock stuff, but it would sound so fresh, you know. Mm -hmm. He just was really good. Bob, you, you folks, and I'll say folks because it was a team effort here, you worked with a lot of topical humor. You worked with a lot of local humor. If there was something going on with the mayor of a town or a governor of a state, you would manage to get that in there, but you worked from questionnaires. If I read the, the information correctly, you actually had questionnaires come in for you to have some background information. Yes, uh, okay. 
Now, how did, you know you, how did you know you weren't getting grudge matches from people, well, for example? <laughs> Hope learned early on that in order to um, uh, be successful in front of an audience, they have to like you, first of all. They, you must be liked and not threatening them in any way, threatening to them. And the more they can identify with you, the more you seem like them or a member of their family or a member of their town or somebody. I use the example in the book uh, that, um, well, every town that he played, we got that, as you say, questionnaires were sent in advance and we would get information about uh, all the local scandals and everything that happened. And then he would <laughs> open up with jokes having to do with just that town. And he would come out and he would say, uh, great to be here in, uh, you know, Yawn Falls or wherever he was. And he'd say, uh, I, uh, I wanted to visit your mayor, uh, but I missed visiting hours. And then they'd laugh because the mayor was uh, jailed maybe for drunk driving the night before or something like that. And by doing that, he, uh, he'd do six or seven, eight jokes in a row all about the town. And he would use familiar names and names of places. And he had learned on the overseas trips when he did uh, the military shows, the guys would get all kinds of information about uh, characters on the ship and uh, the names of officers and uh, nicknames of people and dives. You know, you mentioned a dive that uh, where B-girls would hang out or prostitutes or whatever. He'd have those names and he'd work those into jokes or the writers would. And then the audience would just think, God, he's one of us. How does he know all these things? And it's a psychological thing. And then mm -hmm. he would smoothly blend into his standard act, but it would seem like he was doing a show just specially for this group that he just loved so much that he found out, took the trouble, you know, to find out all these facts. And they appreciated it. And I never saw it work so well as I did in Australia because halfway through preparing that show, I said to him, I said, Bob, we're doing a long monologue. He did monologues in all the major cities, of Adelaide and Brisbane and Sydney and uh, Auckland, New Zealand. And, and we had monologue jokes for all of those areas, and they're all different. And, uh, but we had reams of material on the, the different uh, dishes that they ate and uh, different names of beers and uh, different customs and um, all kinds of localized humor. So I said to him, what about the audience at home? Aren't they going to wonder what we're talking about when we say, you know, some obscure thing that's very clear to an Australian but doesn't mean anything to us? And he'd say, don't worry about it. What happens is the audience at home will see the audience in Australia laughing and it's catching and it doesn't really matter. They'll get the general idea of what I'm talking about. And he was absolutely right. We got fabulous ratings on that show and I show clips from it uh, still on the shipboard shows that I do. And he's really as funny as he ever was. Uh, he just, uh, like he'd say, uh, I, uh, I played a little golf yesterday. Uh, first time I, I ever had a carry. I had a caddy who was carrying my clubs in a pouch. So they all laugh, you know. And he says, uh, I wouldn't care, but uh, my caddy could jump faster or farther than I could hit. Yeah, my, my caddy could jump farther than I could hit. Those kinds of things. And uh -huh. 
by by weaving in their own stuff, uh, he just had them. And the Australians love Americans anyway, generally, and they love American entertainment. So if you're a member of the entertainment industry down there, you walk on water. I, I, I still want to uh, get back down there and... Uh, I went to Auckland, New Zealand on a ship once and got to, you know, walk around and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would love to spend some time in Australia. Wonderful people, I think. But so darn far to go, you know. Uh, it's 23 hours. It was 23 hours from Ouch. LA. Can you imagine? Ouch, uh, Ouch. 747. Ouch. Hope oh. that by the time I got here, I started to look like my passport picture. <laughs> That's pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah. That's a long trip. <laughs> And I want to take that one step further. We, we were talking about the local uh, connection. Uh, you really, uh, he really achieved a personal connection with the audience he had in front of him, and then he could do the rest of the stuff, and they loved him. Um, but what about the political climate? I mean, you, you put together, all of you, and he delivered some really biting political stuff. I mean, he, he took... Uh, Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy, that that was a national tragedy, and he could make it into uh, a humorous routine. Well, uh, one of those jokes that we were doing on Billy, that was before it became clear that he uh, had an alcoholism problem. Once that came up, we never did another Billy joke. But until that day, he was a dream come true for comedy writers because, I mean, he was just doing crazy things, you know, every day. And uh, we we did a lot of Billy jokes and stuff. But Hope used to say that he got away with um, his political humor because he used a velvet knife. I said, what's that? Mm. Well, that's one that goes in, but you don't feel it. And mm-hmm. you kind of enjoy it. So, yeah. And, and politicians softly. generally are such hams anyway. They all are frustrated show business people. Uh-huh. You know, they'd all just love to be in show business, but they can't. So they go into politics. So they can be on TV and see their face on <laughs> on the screen and stuff. And he knew that. And that's what he liked about uh, about politicians. He he was apolitical himself, which is a strange thing that comes out in the book. Uh, he, I don't think he really had any uh, any basic love for politics as such, but he loved the the idea of politics and and these show folk because to him it was just like a bunch of comedians uh, trying to stay out of trouble. <laughs> which mm-hmm. Not all of them did, you know. When they got into trouble, he was on them, and uh, he 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 got away with it because he gave them great exposure for one thing, uh, and politicians love exposure. They really do, and especially if they're running for anything. And uh, then he, he got to really like Gerald Ford as a friend because they had uh, houses in Palm Springs and the wives knew, knew each other and mm-hmm. did a lot of socializing and stuff. And Jerry was a nice guy. He really was. I, I never could figure out why he even went into politics because he, he, uh, he was just one of those basic kind of small-town guys, you know, and he, he didn't uh, – he used to be on our show and – he he read the lines like he was reading an eye chart. And we'd say, Jerry, loosen up. <laughs> yes, Bob, happy to see you. And, you know, I mean, come on. But uh, he was a, he was the nicest guy, and we all liked him. And then he pardoned Nixon, and I couldn't stand him after that. But no, no. Uh, he, <laughs> and Betty was nice. And so they were uh, they were very friendly with, uh, with the Fords. And then uh, the Reagans, too. You know, we did an awful lot of Reagan jokes, and we loved it when 
Nancy Reagan would uh, try to write off her uh, Dino De Laurentiis uh, dresses and Gucci and all that, and the IRS caught her and said, you can't do that because they were donated to you in the first place. <clears throat> and so there was a big controversy about that. And uh, Was there anything or anybody that was off limits? Well, let's see. Anything or anybody that was off limits. Well, uh, drugs after a while. When drugs became uh, a national problem, there was a time in the, toward the mid, late 70s, early 80s, where uh, there, there were really, drugs were coming to the forefront. It was obvious that uh, it was a problem. And so uh, we stopped doing any more pot jokes. Up to then, we could, uh, we could do jokes about marijuana, but... Uh, so we would stop. And then, of course, any time a celebrity got into real trouble like Billy did, uh, we would stop doing anything more mm -hmm. about, uh, about the problem. So he, he was aware of, uh, we're talking about real people here, and you can, uh, you can hurt people, you know, very easily. So, uh, and he, he got away pretty much uh, throughout his life with uh, uh, not, uh, not incurring the wrath of, of too many people, although, you know, there were some people I'm sure that didn't didn't appreciate some of his lines. But did you uh, ever get a call from the White House that said, "Folks, I I think we need to let this one go"? Not that I know of, but how would I, mean, I know? We've got Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, Gorbachev. We've got some really powerful international figures who yeah, came yeah, into I, your your humor. That was that was the the fun of it because we could not only uh, slam Americans, we could slam uh, <laughs> people from foreign nations. And, uh, you weren't prejudiced. <laughs> that was really fun, you know. <laughs> you went about uh, this with no prejudice. <laughs> yeah, and then then we would do uh, the Queen, you know, the royalty mm -hmm. jokes. We had a field day with royalty because uh, it's, it's such a silly thing when you think about it. You know, you look at what uh, um, the, <laughs> the scandal that just broke during the week, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Fergie? Yeah, Fergie. Uh, and they have her. I mean, she's... You can't say that on a piece of tape and get away with that. And uh, so it, 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 it's touchy, but if you don't take it too seriously, like when the, when the queen came uh, to visit, uh, she came in the Royal Yacht Britannia. I don't uh, remember. I don't know if you remember that trip, but it was like in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And the Reagans greeted them to show them uh, the American uh, version of, Buckingham Palace, you know, and they visited the White House and stuff. And uh, Hope said, uh, uh, you know, there's some controversy about uh, curtsying, a lot of discussion about curtsying when, uh, when Nancy Reagan meets the Queen. And believe me, I know Nancy Reagan, and she doesn't care if the Queen curtsies or not. <laughs> we... <laughs> oh God! But curtsying is it's so silly to start with, you know. So you get a good joke on that. But he he had dinner one night on the Britannia. Was down here at Docton, L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came back and he was all excited. And he says to me, uh, "God, I had dinner down there and it was it was fun." And uh, and Princess Diana <laughs> there, this this young gal, she is one one sharp gal. You know what she does? If you notice, she. She, she looks down, and you see her photos, and, and you look at any photo of Princess Di, she's never looking straight up. She's always got her head cocked a little bit down, and then she's, her eyes are looking up. So she's always 
You know what I'm talking about? Coy. Think, think of those those poses of Prince yeah. Kai. He looked at me and he says, I saw her across the table and I realized that she is doing that. She says, that kid is sharp. It took me 25 years to learn how to do that. <laughs> but when you do it, you remove all of your um, wrinkles and things. You don't see it. Otherwise, you look like you're taking a, a mugshot with that straight ahead, you know, deer in the uh -huh. headlights look. So if you're taking, and this is for you at home, folks, remember this when you're taking your... Uh, passport picture or your driver's license picture they they don't uh, care about what it looks like so you have to make it look as good as you can just instead of looking straight ahead cock your head a little to the left <laughs> and a little bit downward and have your eyes looking toward the lens of the camera and did Bob Hope ever do that? he did it all the time and I've done it ever since and I've never taken a bad photo since so <laughs> we all know Princess Di's secret now but it's a small thing, but you'll you'll find out that it's a it's a great trick to know about. You, you'll never take a, a a mugshot type picture again. That's amazing. Thank yeah, you for telling that, me that. Okay, but it, kind he, of... it was like a little kid in that way. What, who would notice something like that except uh, a little kid who was thrilled to be at the table with royalty? Well, he <laughs> he he was always thrilled about royalty anyway because he was born in Eltham, and uh, he was brought here when he was three. So he said, I, I left England when I realized there was very little chance of me ever becoming king. <laughs> and he'd say, little did I know, I could have swum over to Denmark and become a queen. But anyway, and then they'd all laugh. You know, He did that in this act for years and years, those two jokes. That's but he was true. from London, uh, from England, and he right. uh, is very proud of it. <laughs> and when did this come out when he spent time with the royal family? Did they talk about his birthplace at all? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, he he got a lot of awards from. The, I think he got the the highest award that an American gets, just short of uh, you know being knighted. And uh, yeah, the Queen was very aware of uh, of where he was from, and uh, we would we would do command performances there, and she would be up in the box, and you're looking up there, and this. Uh, Prince Philip and and the Queen comes in and it was it was something you're pinching yourself saying what am I doing here this is crazy right sure. so one time it's a funny story we were um, we were rehearsing one afternoon at the Palladium London Palladium which is fairly small theater really and um, uh, Hope was uh, practicing uh, rehearsing his monologue with Barney McNulty who had a an easel set up so that he could put the cards on the easel and uh, moved them, and so Hope's watching, 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 and a couple of guys from Scotland Yard came in <laughs> with the suits, you know, and they said, might, might we have a word? Yes, okay. So we all huddled, you know. Uh, you know, there's a, um, a British tradition that uh, the uh, royal family uh, should never see any props, and uh, it's our, it's our, it's our uh, opinion that, uh, that, uh, that easel there is actually a prop. And so they, they were up in the box and to see if it would be in the line of sight when the queen was sitting there. And they determined that it would be. So they said, if you wouldn't mind awfully, could you move it back several rows and then it'll be fine. So Barney moves it back several rows. He puts the cards back up and Hope can't see him. <laughs> and he's looking. He says, I can't even see you, Barney. Yeah, he couldn't see him. So what do we do? 
we have to help Barney reprint all the cards. So there we are in the lobby of the London Palladium, reprinting cards for that night so that the Queen won't see Barney's easel. So that's just a little... Uh... Wow, now these are cue cards you're talking about. The what? Cue cards you're talking about. Cue cards, yeah, right. Yeah, Barney when... McNulty. I have a lot of stories about Barney McNulty. Uh, he latched up with Bob very, very early in television and was his cue card, head cue card guy that traveled with him uh, through all the, the war zones and everything and all those Vietnam trips. And uh, he was just a sweetheart of a guy. And um, I have a lot of stories about him uh, in the book and how um, we all just loved him. <clears throat> he died fairly recently, I think. Uh, well, I just talked to his wife, and actually it's five years, five, six years ago now. Wow. But he was uh, he was a sweetheart. He, he came from a kind of a show business background. His uh, sister was Penny Singleton. Oh, yes. And her name is McNulty, her real name. That's right. And so, uh, yeah, Barney, you're such an expert. I can't fool. Hold <laughs> on. Anyway, uh, he um, he became a cue card guy. He was a a page at CBS in New York, and Ed Wynn had just switched over to television from radio, and he couldn't get used to not having a sheet of papers in his hand to read, which you did with radio, TV. You have to learn your lines. And he couldn't. So he comes down to the footlights and he says, Barney, Barney, would you do me a favor? Run across the street and see if you can get some uh, Bristol board and uh, some India ink and some pens and write these lines for me. And then you can hold them up and I can, I can see them from uh, off camera. No one will see you doing this. So Barney ran across the street and into a whole new profession, which he did for the rest of his life. And he called his little company Ad Libs, which I always thought was cute. And then he ended up doing um, cue cards for movies, too. He worked on, oh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. And uh, he worked on all the Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon pictures. And a lot of, uh, he worked on um, uh, Jim Garner's show. Uh, a lot of a lot of the guys, you know, got used to, to Barney uh, when they were, would appear on TV and they'd think, why don't I have this? I won't have to be so, uh, stay up so late learning my lines for the next day. Because they always <laughs> shot these <laughs> these dramas uh, for television like movies and you have a lot of time and, and you do little short bits at a time. But uh, uh -huh. Barney there, they could do longer takes and you didn't have to actually memorize all your lines. You could just glance over. And So he was, uh, he was a sweet guy. And... Uh, he if saved Bob's any... life, which was which was something that uh, made the two very close. He he was notoriously late. He was a great cue card guy, but he was like Bill Clinton. He had no sense of time, and so a lot of times, Hope and the guest would be there, ready to go, and the schedule would call for rehearsal of a talk spot or something like that. And where's Barney? Where's Barney? Well, Hope would just get furious with him, you know. Where? And then he finally show up. And uh, so this one time it happened, they were supposed to be at the Brinks Hotel in Saigon, and the uh, Viet Cong had captured an itinerary of Bob Hope and knew where he would be at this hour, and they shelled the, the floor with his suite, wiped out his suite and the suite on either side, which he was not in because Barney had been late, thereby saving Bob's life. So... <laughs> That, uh, that, that cemented their relationship forever. 
It sure sounds like it. Yep. Bob, what was the magic of the Christmas specials? You know, uh, Hope never was really sure himself, but he knew that there was magic to it. And so we would say to him, let's change this. Or We've been doing this the same way for so long, Bob. Why don't we? And he'd say, no, no, we don't touch the Christmas format <laughs> because it, uh, it just became inviolate. You, every Christmas show was just as predictable as it could be, if you recall. He would do the monologue, and then he would do some sort of holiday sketch and uh, be a couple of songs by the guests. Then we would have the AP All-America football team where the big guys would come out, you know, and he would fly in. Uh, the, the, they're vote, voted by the AP uh, Associated Press guys who mm -hmm. vote these best players from all the different mm -hmm. teams. And they, they would be flown to Burbank and uh, at Hope's expense, too. So they were having a good time. And um, they would come out and they'd do a, a little joke. They'd say, like, uh, D. Hardison, uh, left tackle, University of Cincinnati. And uh, then Hope would do a little joke on him and say, oh, at Cincinnati they called D. Uh, peanut. That's because when he's finished with you, you're shelled, salted, and stuffed into a jar of Skippy. And the guy would glare at him and trapes <laughs> off. And it was just the same thing every single year, time after time. And it never changed. And then on top of that, we had a set. It was an old beat-up cardboard thing that had been used way back in black and white days, and it looked it, you know. And we'd say, "Why don't we at least repaint the set?" <laughs> no, no, it's it's, it's got a, a nice, well-worn feel to it, and he liked that. So we would do that every year, and then we would do the Rose Queen in her court every year, and uh, that was one of our tougher assignments because, you know, he's talking to a a high school girl and. Not, not a lot of life experiences to relate to. And so it was uh, every year to try to make it uh, interesting. We would have to struggle with that. But he, he would just not hear of uh, changing any of these elements. And then the final segment would be uh, Silver Bells, which he would sing with the singer of the, of the show, whoever it was. Or if the, uh, the gal was tone deaf, he'd call in Dolores and she would join him, and they did a different setting each year. Uh -huh. New Silver Bells, which he had introduced in uh, Lemon Drop Kid, I think. And uh, the same uh, same guys uh, that wrote Buttons and Bows and uh, Mona Lisa. And, um, yeah, Livingston and Evans. Yep. Yeah, Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, yeah. and uh, you know they had uh, done a lot of great music for Bob and stuff. And there was just a tradition about it. And it worked every single, every single year. We would do the same jokes pretty much. We would talk about the bowl games, and uh, and we'd talk about uh, shopping. Always shopping, you know. I can't believe uh, uh, shoppers have gotten so nasty this year. I saw one floor walker. This shows you how far I go back. What's a floor walker, right? <laughs> I saw I saw one floor walker who got rid of his carnation and was wearing a Venus flytrap. I mean, Cute. come on, it's really bad. Uh, I, I, I asked one clerk, how much is this baby tears doll? And does it really cry? And she says, no, uh, but when I tell you the price, you will. Baby tears doll. Baby tell you tears. the price, you will. Come on, folks, laugh it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like. Times have changed, times have changed. But we would do those kinds of jokes. And uh, 
every year, pretty much, uh, the same as the year before, uh, overall, and it uh -huh. just, just seemed it, to work every year. It, it, was, it, sounds, it sounds like it had the warmth and familiarity of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Well, the exactly song never right. changed. Yeah, you didn't try to, uh, to wow anybody. They just wanted this, this thing that they, that they knew was going to be, uh, be there, like the Christmas tree every year that you put up. It might be a little different, but it's still in the same place in the room. Mm -hmm. Same ornaments are on it, and so yeah. hey, Bob, that, that's I, it. And then I and it worked yeah. for years. I want to remind people that we're talking with Bob Mills, who is the author of *The Last Makers*, a behind-the-scenes tribute to Bob Hope's incredible gag writers, and he is one of Bob Hope's incredible gag writers from his uh, television years. Uh, the book is available through Bear Manor Media. That's bearmannermedia.com or amazon.com. And for people who have phone calls to make and uh, questions to ask, please call 714-545-2071. And I stomped right on Walden. He has a question, I and I, I walked right on him. I remember today, is would, Bob would have been 107 today. That's why I thought it would be fun to have Bob Mills part of this. I believe, yeah. A couple things, Bob, I've been thinking. How many newspapers do you personally read every day? What, did you have a system to make sure you are on top of the current political humor? And who did your research when you were going to go out of city or out of country? Did you guys did you do that? Did, they, did Bob have a staff that looked up local local you know information to make sure you knew what the the hit That's right. No, when it, when we went to foreign countries, he had a a guy um, in London who was our man in London, and he worked on all the shows. And when we would get there, he would put little, uh, we call them 10 Downing Street touches to our material to okay. make it seem more authentic. And Brian Blackburn, his name was, mm -hmm. really a nice guy. And he would tip us off as to what uh, what we could talk about and that the, uh, the London audience would like when we would be at the Palladium or whatever. And then when we went to Australia, uh, he hired as a producer of that show, Chris Beard, who was born in Australia, and um, he formulated the Gong Show, and he was mm -hmm. very successful, and a young guy, and um, he plied us with enough background material. We just had all kinds of brochures, and and uh, so there was a lot of research involved that we had to uh, to go over in order to give ourselves uh, the the cannon fodder to uh, to use, but. When you're when you're looking at things to get jokes out of them, uh, it's a little bit different than like studying something to remember it. You just see, there's a, a dish called uh, I don't know, toad in a hole. I think is one of their one of their uh, egg dishes that they right. eat for breakfast. Well, I mean that's a joke that just jumps right off the page. How how can you not you know make that some very funny good. remark about that, right? So um, and then as far as uh, Personal, uh, personal research. Did you read a lot of papers? Did the writers read in general, or did yeah. you? Oh, yeah. We, yeah. we read the Times, and the, the L.A. Times used to be a fairly decent paper, and <laughs> hard to believe, but it was. <laughs> I mean, it ranked up there for a while with uh, New York Times yeah. and the Washington Post, but, uh, you know, today it's just nothing. But uh, we, we all got the Times, and then uh, whatever... Whatever, uh, uh, Time Magazine mm -hmm. used to be good, which is no good anymore. It's mm -hmm. uh, like a pop culture thing now. And Newsweek was good. Um, and we would we would watch for trends, you know. Right. 
ads and things like that and get those out of uh, like Time and Newsweek. And did you have a, a, a schedule for the whole year? Did you know how many live shows you're going to do, how many TV specials? That way you sure had an idea what direction or how much material you're going to have to produce in a whole year. Well, pretty, pretty much we knew how many hours he was signed up to do. When I first went to work for him, he was still doing, I think we would do eight or nine specials a year. Now that's out of 12, uh, 12 months. So you're doing one every month and a half or something like that. And they were spaced out mm -hmm. so that uh, you, uh, you could pace yourself. And you, you'd start usually in uh, late August and then uh, work through the holidays and do the Christmas special and, uh, and then on into the, uh, into the spring. And, and, then, um, and then as years went on, he did fewer and fewer hours and we would have more time in between the shows. But then we were traveling, too, and doing longer shows. We, uh, like the, the, the China show was three hours long, and that was a lot of, a lot of work. I mean, we, we uh, started way in advance on that and uh, really put a lot of work into it. And then on top of that, when we got there, it was just written by three people, Gig Henry, God rest his soul, me, and J James Lipton, who now hosts... Uh, Oh, uh, actor studio. You right. Know? Uh, what's it called? Yeah, the actor the studio. Actor studio on yeah. Bravo. He's a sharpie boy. He he produced some of the best Bob Hope specials in the eighties uh, and uh, late seventies and eighties. And uh, but the three of us, and I look back on it and I think we we really didn't uh, think about it. We just did it. And mm -hmm. on top of that, we got over there and Bob said, "Oh, I made a deal with." King Features Syndicate, and I'm I'm going to send impressions back home of China every well, two or three days. I'll get some impressions. That'll be you guys, and so come up with some ideas. So we would say, oh yeah, well we'll do one on the Great Wall and, mm -hmm. and get a column out of that. So we'd have to write this column. On top of that, he said they have an office in Tokyo, and we have to uh, send it by uh, teletype to Tokyo. So neither Gig or I were the teletypist, but we went down to the bowels of the hotel, and here's this this teletype machine. It looked like a church organ made out of iron, and it had all kinds of doohickeys on it, and it must have been used, you know, back in the days of gunboat diplomacy in China. <laughs> so I said to Gig, do you have any idea how this works? No, but let's just try trial and error. So the way it worked was there's a, a, like a tape, and you put the tape in there, and then you it puts holes in it as you're typing the different letters and things. And then you, you run the tape through to see if it's okay. And then if it's okay, then you put the tape in that thing that actually would go to Tokyo. So I'm thinking, God, people are going to be reading this in their morning papers. Here we are sitting down here typing this thing out, you know, <laughs> letter by letter. Oh, it was something else. But uh, then we got home, and he, he makes a deal with uh, Post magazine, to uh, combine all of the impressions and do a, a cover story, which he did. And so we got to read our stories when we got home a few months later in post, and I still have uh, the issue. And it's, uh, it's fun to, uh, to recall what I was doing in the room when I was talking about the Shanghai. Uh, the, the <laughs> we did a thing where he says, uh, Shanghai, uh, the rusty ships, I forget the wording of it, but... Uh, pungent in the evening salt air 
rusting in the gutter, whatever it was, and, it, and the smell of opium dams. And oh, <laughs> I think I'm getting homesick. <laughs> oh, That's cute. But it, it was well written stuff. You almost didn't get out of China. Came close. <laughs> I won't. I won't spoil that little drama for those who get the book because it, it, it really was a drama. I um, came close to yeah, not getting out. Right. So have you decided what if you're going to live in China for the last thirty years? You, you think you could find work as a writer, Bob? If I was yeah, yeah. but if I would have been writing to the State Department trying to get me out. Yeah. <laughs> my wife day. and I. My wife and I went back there in in two thousand seven. We went on a riverboat up the Yangtze, hiking cruises. Highly recommended, by the way. And I could not believe the changes in China in that 30 years. It had been 20, 29 years at the time. Just night and day. Wow. Did a, did a TV script, you know, in radio, everybody, generally a 30-minute radio show is about 30 written pages. Was that pretty true for television, Bob? Would a, a one-hour special be about 60 pages? Would there a rule of thumb? Well, yeah, and it depends on what the material was. Okay. You know, a variety show has a lot of musical numbers, mm -hmm. and uh, but the talk spots and things, um, yeah, it was about a page per minute, mm -hmm. maybe, if you averaged it out. Whatever. That's about right. Yeah. Uh, one, yeah. One of the things you and I touched on before we came on the air was the rapid fire bam, bam, bam humor that never lost the audience. You, you managed to sustain them on a humor high, and they didn't run out of energy. How did you do that? Well, how he did it. How did he do it? Yeah, how he did it. He did it with uh, just developing that style over many, many, many years. He realized early on that he had to control the room. He had to be in charge, and he would get up there, and he would just bang these lines out. And he would do it in a way that assumed that you knew what he was talking about. And Johnny Carson developed that kind of a style, too. And Hope would, would stand there, and if he didn't get a laugh on a line because he thought the audience didn't understand it, he'd stand there and he'd say, I'll wait, <laughs> and put the pressure on him, you know, and they'd, they'd feel guilty for not getting it, you know. Turn but, the uh, tables. Yeah, so he... Uh, he, it, it was just, it was a challenge to him to, uh, to try to figure out what makes people laugh. And most of the time, he, uh, he was correct, but not all the time. I mean, it, it's uh, the, what makes the, the profession, uh, the pastime so interesting is that there's no surefire thing. What, what people laugh at, uh, you, you, you think you know based on what they've laughed at in the past. And yet, sometimes you... Uh, you're, you're, you're surprised. Now, Hope used to have, he'd have a, one or two favorite jokes in a monologue. And if he'd get to one of his favorites and it didn't go over that well, he'd stop and he'd say, God, I, I thought that was going to be one of my biggies. And they'd laugh at that, you know. But he would kind of apologize and, and, because, and then he would think to himself, you know, uh, how could I be so wrong, you know? And then it could work the other way, too. One time we were doing a baseball special, the 75th anniversary of the World Series. And he says, with the series in L.A., there have never been so many celebrities in the stands. Uh, yesterday I sat in the shade. I had a box seat in front of Dolly Parton. Okay, so he gets the laugh. <laughs> He gets the laugh on that because it's a picture, see? You, you all see the same picture, and that's a key thing. So he gets the yeah. laugh on it. 
And then he says this. He follows it up with this line. He says, uh, in the third inning, Dolly caught a pop foul, and Steve Yeager is still looking for it. Mm -hmm. They came out of their seats on that line. They just screamed. And he had to stop the taping because uh, they just went crazy. And he, he stopped and he said, God, every once in a while you run into a gem. I, he said, I didn't see that one coming. But it's a, it's a crapshoot, you know what I mean? It uh, uh -huh. works both ways, but uh, that, uh, that, that joke just happened to be, and I analyzed, I analyzed jokes that worked, and I think the key to it is that people have to understand at the same instant the joke for it to, to get a, a good laugh. Yeah, that's why there's so many references to products, because we loved using products and jokes, because everybody knew the product. And you could uh, you could use a name of a product in a joke, and it would it would play. And of course, the companies of the the owners of the products that we would plug, really that's what we were doing. But if it fit our our situation, usually in a sketch, I have one sketch in there. We did about ten plugs, just one after another. And I thought that's all free advertising. You know, they pay millions of dollars in advertising budgets. So even well. though you were poking fun at them, it was visibility that they really couldn't buy. Yeah, and, uh, and it, wasn't, it wasn't making fun of the product. It was using the product uh, to, to identify something that was happening. For, for instance, uh, in one sketch, um, uh, Hope was playing King Arthur, and uh, uh, Steve Lawrence is Sir Lancelot, and he's... He's uh, trying to poison King Arthur. But King Arthur, Pope, switches the goblets. And so he um, <laughs> switches the goblet, and then when, uh, when Steve Lawrence isn't looking, and then Steve picks the goblet up, and it has smoke coming out of it. And he says, oh, man, oh, man, Shevitz, my man, Shevitz is on fire here. Well, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great uh, commercial for man, Shevitz, isn't it? Uh-huh. You know? And uh, another one we said, uh, oh, I think I just took the, the Pepsi test. We did that. And later on, <laughs> they're trying to, to, to do each other in, see. Uh -huh. Oh, and um, uh, Edie Gourmet comes in, and she says, and she's married to King Arthur, and she says, uh, greetings, my king, my lord, my lantern.